0: diners and travelers and, and sheltering placers and sometimes in and sometimes out, some just emerging, reemerging, whatever. It's a crazy time. Hey, we're 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 going from red to
1: yellow, man. We're we're we're, yeah. we're, we're really cooking here in western Pennsylvania. The only problem is the state liquor stores are still still aren't fully open. Right. And there's they're still I only have 853 busy signals recorded. <laughs> so, so.
2: Anyhow,
0: um, I think that, that we sort of verge on being um, concept driven over this show. We are. Okay, very good. Yeah. Very good. Okay. And uh, we start out. I wonder, with, I wonder what we were. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's what, what we're talking about. We're interviewing Eve Turo Paul. Um, whose provocative book is titled Hungry, Avocado Toast, Instagram Influences in Our Search for Connection and Meaning. I think you see where she's going, um, and I think she'll show us how to contrast what's really ahead to what's been the case, because they're actually different. Let's listen to Eve. We're talking to Eve Turo-Paul, that's a hyphen in there, um, and her book, Hungry. I I, I wasn't sure I understood the subtitle of it, Um, that part of it I do. It's subtitled, Avocado Toast, Instagram Influencers, and Our Search for Connection and Meaning. And I guess that's really what we're supposed to be talking about, Eve, right?
3: search for connection and meaning i think that's everything
0: yes no yeah i i was just about to say the interesting thing i'd like to hear from you is how everything has actually changed so dramatically from when you actually wrote finished writing and sent off to the publisher this book in terms Mm -hmm. of our social structure
3: yeah, well, I mean, the world has completely changed, right? And right. in Hungary, what I'm doing is is evaluating what really are the emotional drivers behind today's biggest food and lifestyle trends. And a lot of that time is being spent on evaluating what the impact of technology has been on those those emotional states. And now, you know, technology is kind of like the side story and COVID is, is the main thing. Right is the main thing that that's impacting how we're feeling and how we're acting, and part of my surprise. And you know, I apologize if I'm jumping ahead here, but uh, in the book I outline how things like anxiety and loneliness and a desire to <laughs> be closer to nature are driving the food and lifestyle trends that have been dominating the market. And now we're just seeing those hungers, pun intended, um, mm. growing. Uh, you know, right? It's, it's all of those things have just been exacerbated over the last month, and that is that is showing up in the way people are spending their their time and money.
1: Okay, so so explain to me the connection between the death of the cereal industry and and our using our smartphones.
3: Okay, so first of all, the cereal industry, I should say, is not dead, but there are a lot of people who who claim that it is. Um, there was an article written by Kim Severson at, at uh, the New York Times several years ago. I love ago that Kim, was, by the
2: way.
3: Yes, she's amazing. I love her. Amazing, yeah. one of the best food journalists that we that we have right now. Um, but she was was kind of uh, making the argument that perhaps millennials have killed the cereal industry because they're too lazy to pour milk in their cereal, and this was backed up with some data from uh, the research market research firm Mintel. And if you really go into the the study, what becomes clear is that it's not that millennials are lazy. It's that we don't have enough time to pour the milk and clean up the bowl. And people are saying, well, I'd rather just drink a smoothie on the subway on my way to work or have a, a cup of yogurt while working at my desk. Um, and the next question that I then ask is, well, why the heck are people choosing to, you know, eat a granola bar instead of sit down for a real meal, whether that's a bowl of cereal or, um, uh, or you know, having some, some eggs and toast in the morning at home? And the answer is that everybody now is crunched for time. Uh, we could go into well, a whole <laughs> other conversation
0: about how COVID has impacted this, but... <laughs> I think the most of us have more time on our hands than we really want it at this point. Everybody's well, cleaning really and sorting and you Yeah, know. you know,
3: it's really interesting because in so in the book I outline essentially how access to email and twenty four hour news has impinged upon our family time or our hobby time, that people are are kind of working around the clock. And this has caused some people to experience what's called burnout, um, which the WHO has identified as a major health threat. And there is something really interesting happening right now in this moment because um, a lot of people are still experiencing burnout. I've, I've been hearing from a number of people who are saying that their employers are even less respectful of their time now because they are saying to their employees, well, I know you're not going anywhere. I know you don't have any other plans, so you may as well work 12 hours a day. Um, And this is driving a lot of people who have other responsibilities, such as childcare or, you know, wanting to do the basics of, Cleaning their house, or making a meal, or wanting to go on a walk—it's—it's it's driving people a little crazy. Um, so it's—it's it, interesting because the jobs that are still driven by our relationships to tech, um, are still the culprits of of causing a time crunch and a sense of burnout.
0: You know, did you read the? Uh, what, what was it? Was it in the New York Times or what? Um, Gabriel Hamilton wrote about. Closing Up prune. Did you read that? I'm trying to remember. I don't believe I did. Well, the point that I think is interesting is that she was closing up, which was, you know, closing up restaurants are probably as difficult, if not more so, than opening them up. Mm -hmm. And um, it involved much more than she anticipated, particularly in her thoughts about whether or not, if, and when, um, restaurants are allowed to open again, will there be any need for prune or anything like prune? Mm-hmm. And mm. I thought that was very interesting and she went, she rattled through some of the changes which you touch on in this book uh, about the, the foodie culture and um, you know, the, the, the food, the restaurant meals and entertainment and and you know all, the, the whole thing—the equivalent of avocado toast—you know on everything—and mm-hmm. and that's part of what she was saying. Probably will not be the same when we reopen. Well, well
1: I, I, I'm, I'm not so sure about that one, sweetheart. Because if you if you think about it, if you think that that what we're experiencing now. Is the same as happened in the 1930s. Then plenty of plenty of restaurants reopened since the 1930s.
3: So and, you know, I think the other really important point to build on that is that this foodie culture that that uh, Gabrielle Hamilton was was talking about was really born after the recession in 2008. Right, and right. right, the millennial generation who are now uh, the oldest millennials are f- like uh, 40, youngest are late, or sorry, uh, early 20s. Um, this foodie culture has been catalyzed and pushed forward by millennial dollars. And we, I am a part of this generation, we're also the generation that was, to be frank, most significantly impacted by the 2008 crash. I mean, I graduated oh, yeah. from college and um, in an environment where l- my I remember the college speaker at the end it was basically like you've paid into society, you've done everything society has asked for you, and society is not going to pay you back. And uh, you know, and I started to observe this crazy, uh, potent, obsessive food culture when I was living in New York in 2010 as a as a uh, getting you know, getting my master's degree in writing, which honestly I did because it was too hard to find a job. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> but I was still I was choosing to spend what little discretionary income I had on $100 underground meals and really fancy cheese at Whole Foods instead of buying new clothes or instead of taking taxis or instead of going to the movies. Um, and I think that that's because food is so comforting and scintillating. Um, and it brings people together. So, I, you know, I really hope that she's wrong in her predictions. Uh, I believe that she will be. I, I think that we're going to see a resurgence of um, intimate, uh, exciting, innovative dining experiences because we're all craving it, right? We're craving all the things that those kinds of restaurant experiences offer
0: us. You know, a chef um, friend, restaurateur, um, successful restaurant feels that once they open up restaurants that it's not going to be a matter of people being afraid to go out that it's going to be a matter of no money to, to afford that now I mean the, it, the economics of it is pretty grim
3: yeah I mean I, I, I don't know what the economics are going to look like once things open up right because we haven't had a crash like this before, where things evaporated in a week, um, you know, it, I don't know the I don't know enough about economics. I haven't studied the models enough to see what's going to happen. All I all I know is the research you know that I've been doing over the last decade on um, what happened in 2008. And again, it really just was people reprioritizing where they were spending their money.
0: Um, so would you have the same a, attitude if, in fact, it were closer to the to 1929 than to uh, 2008, the economic collapse?
3: I really don't know. The reason, so the other reason why I think that dining, in some capacity, is going to come back, and maybe maybe the model is going to look a bit different. Um, is because we're spending so much time on our screens right now. And right, we, you can't really compare it to the 1930s because the human experience, even during this time of quarantine, is so drastically different. Um,
1: yeah, that's true. You know, that's during, true.
3: During, yeah. during the 1930s, during quarantine, you didn't have your boss breathing down your neck. You didn't have 150 emails coming in every day. Uh, you didn't have 24-7 news. You weren't watching the news, seeing, you know, bodies piling up in refrigerated
0: trucks. It's not this I mean, um, just, you know, it's so awful. It,
3: it's, yeah, I mean, when, when you really think about what's happening right now, people's, uh, people are, are being overwhelmed with um, horrific stories. I cover this in the book, but the impact of information overload and the fact that we just simply did not evolve to take in horrors from all over the world. we just, Our brains can't manage it. It's very, very stressful. And this is the environment that we're all living in right now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you pair that with the fact that we're just sitting and, and looking at screens for so much of the day. I do think that... Um, Our basic human desires for um, tactile and sensory exploration are going unmet. Our desire to be with people in person is going unmet. Um, And there's another part of this which we haven't touched on yet, which is that this current crisis is also turning the food system on its head in a really unique way yeah, where there's a record number of people who are starting to cook at home who are looking for CSAs to, to order their groceries directly from local farmers, mm-hmm. um, right? There's like a run on on baby chickens. <laughs> um, edible seed sales are going through the roof. So, that, I mean, that's like a whole other um, aspect to this, and it's evidence of people kind of craving to continue their relationship with food. Well, yeah, I
0: mean, but I guess the fact that the food system is pretty broken right now. I mean, you see the pictures of the the um, dairy farmers dumping their milk, and mm-hmm. and, and you see mm-hmm. all these pigs being taken off to more. I mean, it's it's horrific. It is horrific. And so, I mean, don't you need to have a new system in place, and who's going to do it? Well, and there's.
3: Well, in terms of who's going to do it, I can tell you from the food industry standpoint that there's endless conversations about this right now. Okay. Um, I think that there's two interesting things happening, and I can't – obviously no one can say what, what, is going, what the result of all this is going to be, but number one, what we are talking about of, of exposure to news, right? You have pictures right now on the news of meat processing plants. Now, that's not very common. Most people these days do not think about the fact that their pork chop came from an actual living, breathing pig or that their <laughs> chicken was sorted, right? You don't think we've worked
0: through any of that yet. I mean, I thought that was what we were possibly doing when we were talking about um, the um, farm-to-table stuff, you know.
3: Well, right, and but it, I think that more and more people are probably watching the news being like, oh, my God, that's where my chicken fingers come from. Right, because it's bringing an awareness to, you know, hey, FYI, guys, this is where you've been getting. Th- th- this is where the meat's been coming from that you're buying in the grocery store that's wrapped in Saran Wrap um, that has like some, you know, generic label slapped onto it, which I, which might be in part what's driving people to say, maybe I can get like a, you know, organically raised um, chicken from a local farmer you know and i guess the, the problem other side is of getting
0: this, it from the f- local farm to the, the customer is they will the break here i think
3: yeah i mean there's there's a tons that. the innovation right, the pressure to innovate is on the farmer yeah. um and my worry
0: some is some I, I, I think that the uptick in younger farmers Um, younger people seeking out farming as as a lifestyle was looking promising Mm -hmm. but they're the ones that are are really so slimly bankrolled that this is all they need to be wiped out that were oh
3: goodness gracious I know and I have this like deep uh, I'm trying you know it's like every day you wake up and you just try your darndest to be optimistic
0: yeah. <laughs> Tell me something positive. <laughs> Eve, I'm ready for something positive. Tell me. No, I know. I well, I'm going to
3: try to I'm going to try to give you the positive spin here, which is that again, like what Gabriel Hamilton I think was is so scared of is um that people are not going to be passionate enough about this to bring to bring these industries back. Um mm-hmm. To me, I think that the rising number of people who I even have texting me saying, you know, where do I find a a farm to get a CSA from uh, has been hugely encouraging. Um, People calling me saying, how do I use this, this, and this in my fridge, right? I don't want to be wasting food right now. People are more aware of that. In terms of younger people becoming farmers, the government is going to have to step in to support these farmers who are growing, quote-unquote, specialty ingredients, which, which means you're growing something that you can just eat directly instead of it being fed to a cow uh, or turned into corn syrup, uh, we're going to have to be saving these small farmers. But the farmers who have been able to pivot and figure out how to set up delivery systems or online, online ordering systems are doing really well. And I'll tell just a brief story about this morning. I wanted to order from the farmers market here in Chicago, Green City Market, and they put, you know, a thing up. I've been there. I've log on there. at eight. Yeah. <laughs> at eight I've been there. I like it. On it's Friday. Fun. Yeah, it's huge, and they they just have they have everything. They have everything that we need. They have they have flour. They have eggs. They have all our veggies and fruits, and um, you know, even maple syrup for for weekend pancakes. But, you know, it said log online at eight o'clock. Place your order. And I went on at 8.30, because so that's when I could get online, and all of the slots were sold out already. In yeah, half-hour.
0: Well, we've encountered that one yeah. a lot. You yeah. can't even get on the... I mean, it's so yeah. successful, you can't even get on... Here's, a, here's
1: a real problem for you. Uh, the, uh, the, the liquor system in Pennsylvania oh, is, yeah. controlled, <laughs> is controlled by the state. And, they, of course, they close their stores. And... I, I've been getting busy signals since then. They, they say they have ordering online, but I, I I have yet to put a phone call through, and I must have called at least four hundred times.
0: Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. I mean this so is this so is they're the they're issue, not, though,
3: right? It's like how do you scale up fast enough?
0: And obviously, yeah, I mean there there's no a lot to be done to make this yeah, thing. Work. No idea how to do that. Whole Foods doesn't even
1: know how to do that, and you. I know.
0: You I know. Think they're pretty. Pretty
1: efficient. I couldn't never get a delivery time slot for them. I was actually reduced to using Aldi, a store I would never ordinarily go to. And I actually managed to get an online order through with the, with the delivery date. It didn't matter to me that it was two days hence. At least, at, least yeah. at least I got at the least, items that you, I got looking for. At
3: least for me, the thing that has worked the best for me lately is I found one farm that is delivering yeah. every week, and that has been the most reliable for me.
0: No, um, we've, and it's, yeah, we've, we've been, been trying those, like, a build with, a a with them. Yeah, we, we've been trying that with a. Um, uh, it's so complicated with a, a, a new uh, CSA program called Harvey, which has not worked at all. I mean, it just mm-hmm. it just doesn't. Um, you, you know, they they open the ordering at nine o'clock, and and by nine o five they're done. There's nothing left.
3: Right. Right. And this is because there's either not enough uh, product or there isn't enough delivery people. But what I find promising is there is consumer interest. And yeah, I think this so has all too, happened that. so quickly mm-hmm. that I yeah. do think that, you know, hopefully there are going to be enough people who are experts in logistics and food system management mm-hmm. and business and tech who can come together and see that this is where the new opportunity lies, Right. This is where people want to be spending their it money. Is. Their and and,
0: and right the now. challenge here is, um, I don't know how many farmers you've worked with, but the challenge is organizing them, <laughs> getting <Yeah>. them organized. It's <gasps> right. the challenge. Yes. 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 I mean, you've been like asking camp.
3: people to shift their entire business model in, in a week.
0: Yeah, well, we and, you know uh, we've been dealing with, and uh, we've been interviewing a lot of these um, companies that have shifted their business from, and um, the main customers were restaurants and chefs, and and uh, mm-hmm. I mean a good example of that is um, well, Chef's Garden in Huron, Ota- mm-hmm. Ohio. Yes, you, yes. You, Well, I mean we've been ordering from them. Um, mm-hmm. They they had to they had to totally redo their their model of what they were selling Everything, yeah yeah I mean yeah. you know most of these people order wanting to order from the retail boxes um, they don't want microgreens <laughs> you know? right they, they right. want either know like heads of lettuce and and bags of right spinach. I mean the chef's garden the chef's garden
3: is, is like walking through Eden for any, for any chef or, um, oh, yeah. you know, culinary yeah. aficionado like myself. Um, I was just like walking on sunshine when I got to visit the chef's garden um, yeah. and the farms there. But that's also well, not. I mean, we,
0: we interviewed you know, Lee Jones. We've known him for a million years and, and they yeah. have just reprogram. He does have one thing where he's, working with um, an organic lamb producer and um, chefs like Thomas Keller, who's a part-time owner owner of this thing, and they're doing innovative things with um, video cooking classes using the the lamb uh, and the the Mm -hmm. veggies and so forth. And then you, you end up with a shopping list and you can order the lamb, you could order the, oh, the uh, veggies. Yeah. yeah, so that works. So and then yeah. But there's, there's but you know, our, a, yeah. Our dear friend, um, no, no. Uh, Mr. Gulo, uh, Frank Gulo. I mean, his specialty was octopus. <laughs> it, it takes mm-hmm. a little replanting to move right. a four-pound right. octopus. I
3: mean. From a, uh, this, this is the whole other thing is, is, you know, which we haven't touched on yet, but food access and, you know, as much as I love Chef's Garden, the boxes that he's selling are expensive. And, you know, a lot of these opportunities to buy from farmers are more expensive. Then there's the whole barrier that we haven't even gotten into, which is SNAP using food stamps online. The opportunity for that is still extremely limited. Um, but this crisis, again, I'm going to give you the, the kind of rose colored glasses take on this. I think this crisis is pushing a lot of those innovations forward in a
0: faster pace. Um, because, well, you know, Eve, what I think is you have a built in sequel to this <laughs> book, to tell you the truth.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I mean, I've never seen everything so top, topsy turvy at this point. You never know what's going to come down the bike.
1: This book, this book is amazing. It, what, what, the only thing you need to enjoy it completely is for when is when the official version comes out and the index is there, because it's, yes. it's hard otherwise to navigate. What is an incredible piece of literary work?
0: Oh yeah, well we have a pre-publication copy, about it
1: Yeah, I know. Yeah, no, I understand we do. Yeah, uh, but the the amount of work that went into amount of thought that went into producing this book. It it deserves to be on everybody's bookshelf. How
0: uh, long did it take you to write it, Eve? Oh, thank you so much. Um, It took,
3: well, I've been doing research on food trends and human behavior for uh, about 10 years, but this particular book was about three and a half years in the making.
0: Well, Um, you can tell, certainly. It's an amazing assemblage of understanding and, and uh, experiencing and studying and you know and um getting your predictions out there, which is tough as anything right now
1: and and we, and we i'm hope- sorry
0: i mean I just think that it's an incredible amount of work that you have put into it and and you show so many insights that people should be exposed to.
3: Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that.
1: And we and we hope your uh, girl or little boy grows up strong and all thank the Thank You, yes. And and and, and, and better, yes. better times here. Better times are ahead.
3: That's that, you know, that is my whole perspective and um hoping that this Again, this experience opens our eyes uh, and allows us to be better prepared in the future so that she doesn't have to experience this again in her lifetime. Um, but, you know, and, and for the book, I hope that readers who pick it up are, are seeing um, how how it's working, how the themes that I talk about in the book are, are showing up right now in this crisis. Um, and I'm hoping that it'll illuminate Uh, some of the the trends that are happening, some of the choices people are making and and why that is. So um, I just appreciate you all taking the time to talk to me about it and for taking the time to read it as well.
1: I think I feel a whole lot smarter. (laughs) Anyway, let's see if we continue to be smarter after we take a short break. Right.
2: Podcasting services for On the Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back. Our next guest is a
0: repeat of our show, Matt Moore, who... Pretty much has done it all. He's a a writer, a, a musician, a, a host. A, he, he also is a creator of some of the most incredible titles, uh, including the, the South's Best Bus, which I loved enormously as is the title, and the current one, um, which he is representative of, is called Serial Griller. And you got some basics. You got some taste of personalities. And, of course, one of the things he does most of all and best of all is he collects and, and transfers us these wonderful stories. Oh, we're talking to Matt Moore again. Welcome back, Matt Moore.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, you're the serial griller, and that's the name of your new book.
2: That yeah. is correct.
0: Uh, but you do some things differently in in this book, and one of my favorites was reading the profiles of various um, chef, grill chefs, and a lot of them are our friends, so it was fun hearing your interviews.
4: Yeah, you know, the the last two books that I've written have, um, have been about other people, which I think is a lot of fun, you know, when you're a a cookbook writer. Uh, my first two books were primarily about my methods and, and my family and recipes and techniques, and uh, you know that's always fun to share. But you start to sometimes feel a bit like a narcissist when you're always talking about yourself. So um, my last book was a book totally devoted to barbecue called The South's Best Butts, where we went out on the road and worked with pitmasters. And, and now really excited to have Serial Serial Griller coming out um, and available. And uh, again, just following that format of taking to the road and, and working with some great chefs, sharing their recipes and personalities um, really brings me a lot of joy.
1: Now, a, cereal, a cereal griller, is that—is that like a sort of like the Three Musketeers, or I mean, is it an association, <laughs> or is it just a name you gave to some of your friends?
4: You know, it's just a fun name. Um, obviously, I, I love great titles um, for all my books, and I think that's been one of the things that yeah, has I always stood the- out
0: you it, the South's best
4: spot. Where you about <laughs> that? Yeah, which is not the calendar, by the way, right? Um, right. But we, uh, with Cereal Griller, a great name, obviously, uh, involving just the, the act of what we're doing, of grilling in the title. But, you know, I will say that uh, for me, kind of the, the theory of the book is that it doesn't really matter the course or the meal. Uh, it can all be made better uh, on a grill. So there is kind of a, a play on words that uh, I think is relevant as well. I was, a, you, I
0: you list your you, you, you list 125 killer recipes on the cover. <laughs> <laughs>
1: the, yeah, you, know, you got to
4: have some fun with it, right? They
1: are kill. They are killer recipes. There's no question about that. I I had a couple of questions before before we get too far into this. Things things yeah. that I I wasn't familiar with. The minion the minion method.
4: Yeah, so that's actually, the minion method is a, a method that's actually more relevant to uh, what I would consider barbecuing, like low and slow smoking. Uh, uh-huh. it's essentially a method by which you are uh, setting up a charcoal fire um, to burn uh, very controlled and, and very slowly. Um, it's kind of hard to explain both in written and in verbal context, but we'll, we'll, we'll try it here. Um, imagine that you have a, a grill or a smoker uh, we'll just take the old standard Weber grill that everybody can picture in their mind. And if yeah. you were to say... <laughs> I can picture a, it. i in my back. You can picture it. All right, good. We're, we're going to get there. So if you were to take a um, a traffic cone, like a road cone, and invert it um, and put it into the bottom of the grill, the point would be in the very bottom of the grill. And what you would do is you would kind of pile charcoal all around it, and then you would pull that cone out. And, and what would happen is you'd sort of have like a, a reverse volcano and uh, the idea okay. is just to drop a few hot coals into the center of that pile, and with the right airflow, with time they'll slowly kind of bleed out to to okay. the other coals. So you're not getting a very hot fire, but you're getting a very controlled fire that can cook with um, a precise temperature for a very long period of time.
1: So this so this upside down cone, I mean, <laughs> what, what is it? Where do you, where do you get one? I mean, do you steal do you steal one from roadworks or? what?
4: Well, you know, um, unfortunately, in my neighborhood here in Nashville, we were just hit by uh, the tornado in, in, in the early March. So there's a lot of uh, road construction cones if I really wanted to go through the process. But uh, it doesn't have to be that exact of a science. Just think about uh, dumping a lot of charcoal um, into your grill and then taking your hands in the center and kind of pushing it to the perimeter of the grill so you kind of get that same effect
1: got it okay well i never i never well, heard I never it I never,
0: <laughs>
1: you know i never heard never heard of that before now here here's here's a an, here's an very important word that was shortly after mini, the the minion method in my reading of the book it, it, one of the essential ingredients to successful barbecue cooking is a sidekick <laughs> I like that too. Can, can, can you can you explain that one
4: yeah uh i definitely can i mean the idea is um it is what you want to make it, but something even as simple as a place to, to, to be able to prep. you know a lot of grills will have a table on the side if you're going to be uh, you know, pulling things on and off the grill or you've got a place to, to keep your tongs or for me, uh, an ice cold beverage is, is most likely the sidekick that I have when I'm out grilling. but um, you know I do think it's important when you're when you're working a grill to kind of have your mise en place, if you will, uh, that's going to set you up for success. So being able to easily access Either food or tools or cold beverages uh, to allow you to do that is super important.
1: Uh, see, I thought the sidekick was a person.
4: That can happen too, but you know, my wife uh, when she built, <laughs> we we just moved into a new home in Nashville, and um, at my old house, uh, you used to have to walk down the long hallway from the kitchen. You kind of go around the back side of the house. And between the fence and the house, I kind of had this very narrow passageway that I she called my Q cave, and I had smokers and grills, and I would sit out there all day long and, and grill in peace. Um, she told me this house, she wanted to really have a, a nice, comfortable home with a grill right next to the kitchen. <laughs> the problem is there's a, there's a glass door, um, literally, that she can look out the kitchen and see me, and I'm three feet away from the kitchen. She always asks me what I'm doing by the grill, so... Now I'm kind of um, in this place where I have a lot of convenience, but I can't hide away like I used to in my Q cave. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Okay. Uh,
1: here's, here's, a, here's a different one for you. Explain the difference between East Nashville hot chicken and Buffalo chicken wings.
4: Well. Um... You know, East Nashville Hot Chicken is kind of a play on words. I actually live in East Nashville, which is sort of the Brooklyn of our town. It's it's always known for being a bit quirkier than than anywhere else. But, you know, Nashville Hot Chicken is something that uh, started here in, at, at Prince's, which is a very famous restaurant. Uh, it's always fried, but I called it East Nashville because we actually grilled it, so, so there's the quirk. Um, but hot chicken is not like a buffalo chicken. It's actually a deep heat. It's a, it's a paste-like batter that's, typically marinated like you would a fried chicken and, and buttermilk. Uh, oftentimes there's hot sauce that's also added to that marinade, uh, quite heavier than what you would do for a traditional fried chicken. But instead of using a, a vinegar-based and butter-based uh, sauce like you would a buffalo chicken, you're actually using a, a butter and a, and a blend of spices, primarily uh, red pepper and cayenne. Um, and so it's, it's something that when you when you eat, Um, The hot chicken, it's it's from the the lips to the tongue all the way into the belly. It's it's what they call a deep heat, Um, and it's something that's super delicious. So I wanted to have fun with it for Cereal Griller. Obviously, we're not frying it. We're we're doing it on the grill, but we're coating it in that kind of paste of of spices that uh, that still gives the same payoff.
1: There you go. Here's here's another one I want you to talk a little bit more about because it's, it's, it's so brilliantly described. And it's it's the way that you cook lobsters on the grill, page eighty six to eighty eight. I was absolutely fascinated with with how how you go about dealing with dealing with a lobster on the grill, and and you you wrap it in something.
4: Yeah, you know, so this is a perfect example of me um, deferring to uh, to another grill master to kind of share their area of expertise, and, and this is something that I picked up. Uh, from a chef in in New Orleans and specifically his restaurant in Metairie, Louisiana. Uh, His name's Edgar Caro. And he has a restaurant there called Brasa, which is an homage to live fire cooking, primarily Argentinian style. He grew up in Colombia and Brasa being the term for coals. Uh, And it's really a funny dish because uh, I don't like to intrude on, on chefs. They always ask me, you know, what should I prep before you come down? And and I tell him, I'll, I'll just figure it out when we get there. But this was a particular recipe that he wanted to showcase is a lobster, a live lobster. Uh, and he used soaked kombu that he did in rice wine vinegar. Um, and he actually wrapped the lobster in that and then cooked it over the fire. So essentially, you're getting the, um, the, the steam method by wrapping uh, the actual crustacean in, into, into the kombu leaves, putting it over the fire. It gently cooks the meat, but at the same time, you get this, this charred kombu that you can eat uh, alongside the lobster. And I asked uh, Edgar, I'll never forget, I said, you know, how long has this dish been on the menu uh, as we were preparing it? Because I thought it was like his signature, and he laughed and said, it's never been on the menu, but it's going to be. Uh, so that was a lot of fun for him to, to yeah, try that out. The,
1: well, the, the interesting thing is a, a, lot, a lot of people don't know what kombu is. But, but, but around this house we got it we, <laughs> we, you know, we, we, we got a we got it we got a very large shipment of seaweed from new england and it, it, it has to have been at least six or seven years ago we got it no it's not, and
0: not we, that
1: long and we, we used the last we used the last of it last night
0: yeah now, does, it, it's
4: something did the, the lobster have
0: anything to say when you put it on the
4: grill <laughs> no uh i've cooked i cook every year up in Prince Edward island Canada for the largest country music festival in, in Canada and probably cook i don't know uh, a thousand lobsters a day so I got used to the the process of cooking them and and obviously you know transpiring from a live environment but so my photographer i think was a little uh, weirded out that a live block was being put on the grill but you know we uh we she certainly didn't mind when it came time to, to shooting and eating
1: yeah there, there you go when well, i if you if you're looking for a beautiful thing on a plate it ha it has to be the porchetta and
0: porchetta yeah
1: it's on page 262 love i'm, I'm sending in to look at the picture because it's so such an amazing picture and then and then I'll tell you a story about porchetta.
4: Yeah, you know, it's something I wanted to have in the book. Um, pork belly has become, I think, just so common, and we give a couple recipes for it. Um, but for me, that's a dish that I, I think is really relevant for entertaining um, because it is something that you can cook up, um, you know, hours in advance and, and rest. Um, and then it, it's really that large cut that you get that aha moment because you're carving it and then serving it uh, to individuals. So. A rather affordable dish that um, is is an entertainer's dream because you can actually have it, you know, ready to go hours before your guests arrive and, and then slice it and portion it accordingly. So uh, certainly one is one of those that I wanted to include in the book.
1: But but it's it's a little different than Italian porchetta because cause you have the head taken off already.
4: Oh yeah. Well. <laughs> now, now, now here's, yeah.
1: here's the here's the porchetta story I promised you. We were we were in. Tuscany, Italy and it was it was Easter time, uh-huh. so, so we, we were walking down the main street of this charming, charming little town, and in the window of the butcher shop was a whole pocket, head and all, all the, all the, all the way all the way down, sure. and uh, it was Good Friday, so of course, you can't eat it on Good Friday, everybody, everybody's back home, eating fish. Sure. So, so two days go go by. It's now Sunday, and we're walking on the same street. And we looked in the window of the butcher shop, and the, the only piece of porchetta that was left was a little bit of the head. And it wasn't even lunchtime yet.
4: Oh wow, that's great. So Matt,
0: talk to our listeners a little bit about how you organized this book.
4: Yeah, so we um, we organized the book uh starting first with um, a kind of a grilling guide. And and the idea there is to give people and any book that I do I, I do, I want it to be something that's really well utilized and cooked from. So uh whether you're an expert or a novice, you know, I want everyone to kind of be on the same playing field. So I spend a lot of time actually talking about um, types of grills and, and really for me it just boils down to what is your what is your grilling goal. You know, I would much rather have somebody that's totally averse to cooking or grilling. Um, it's going to be maybe harder for me to sell them on the idea of building a live fire, either with hardwoods or charcoal, because they find the convenience of gas to be uh, so much easier. So, for me, we we actually lay out every recipe with both gas and charcoal instructions. Now, of course, um, as a purist, you know, there's there's no uh, argument that charcoal provides you know better flavor and to me a better atmosphere than gas but at the same time you know we spend a lot of time talking about the different types of grills the different types of fuels and setups uh, tips and tricks and also some of the science of grilling and then from there you come on a great road trip with me uh, we travel 10,000 miles in a few months to track down uh, 12 cereal grillers uh, a couple are the, the most recent James Beard Outstanding Chef winners Michael Solomonoff. at uh, Zahab, yeah, I was surprised doctor. to see him in there because I never think of him as a griller. <laughs> oh, well, you know, you just have to go to, to Zahav and he's built these uh, ceramic uh, based, um, you know, open grills that you find quite often in Israel and the Middle East uh-huh. um, where you're cooking, you know, skewers over coals. Um, yeah. and, and so, yeah, quite a bit of grilling going on on a daily basis uh, within Zahav. So, him yeah. and then Ashley Christensen um, and Raleigh. Uh, Meathead in Chicago, who's one of my uh, oh, he's one funny. of the books that I look up to. Yeah, he's a great. I, and then some up-and-comers as well. So we go from the the pit masters or grill masters. Then we 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 round it out with another seventy-five or so killer recipes. Uh, everything from starters to mains to desserts and and hot handhelds and sides and everything in between. Yeah, well,
0: uh, that and that's the part where you're going to get the killer recipes. It really, I mean, they're. I don't know how you devise all these recipes where' they come from?
4: you know I, I cook every every single day that I'm here in Nashville. Um, I often joke that my wife is like a New York Times food critic because uh, she's always judging me so I, I do live with the toughest critic around and um, you know one of my joys is to take my my kids I have uh, two daughters that are four and two years old and um I'm one of those people that uh, I like to go to the grocery store not once a day but like three or four times a day. Um, <laughs> my wife jokes that she jokes that my best friends uh, all work at the grocery store, which is yeah. Kind I have the same situation stuff. here. Yeah, yeah what, what, and, what and are you I like doing? Just, I like to go pick up what's on sale and, and what looks good, and then I, I put something together. So um, you know, for me, uh, usually it's it's a year or so with with a, a gap between cookbooks and, um, you know, that's where I'm able to, um, come up with new ideas. And I, I think like anything else, I mean, it's a cookbook and, and we have recipes for, you know, ribs and burgers and wings and pizza. But at the same time, we also have, you know, porchetta, we have a crispy pigtail. We've got, um, you know, a lot of vegetarian and vegan style dishes. So I really wanted this to be a, um, a classic grilling book that, that's going to give you the payoff of what you want, but also maybe expand the boundaries a little bit as well.
0: Yeah, well, your, your dessert section—I mean, this is uh, this is the section that I'm always amazed to see what you can do on a grill for dessert. And I've always intended to try grilling watermelon, but i never really got around to it. Yeah, I you think
4: watch honestly, you watch probably out one of the, the most underrated. Choice. Yeah, the underrated. Uh, dessert of all time is, is fruit on the grill. Um, you know, obviously, with uh, the high heat temperatures and the searing abilities of a grill, whether it's watermelon, peach, pineapple, uh, even apples, you know, you you create that natural caramelization. And honestly, uh, we do a grilled strawberry uh, from Zahav at Michael Solomonoff's place that Camille Cogswell put together. And I think um, it, it's actually a really healthy dessert. It's something that I constantly oh, enjoy yeah. grilled peaches. Um, and, and my guests always love it. it. It's healthy. It's got that smoke and char, um, especially during the summer. There's nothing better than some some grilled Georgia peaches with some vanilla ice cream. Oh, wonder, um, oh you're making me so hungry.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I love this grilled pear with gorgonzola toast. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. That's a good one. <laughs> but how do you a how
4: do As, you
0: a, grill as a dessert
4: or make?
0: The grilled donut ice cream sandwiches. That stopped me short.
4: <laughs> yeah, that's. I had to have something for my girls, um, so that's that's one of those, you know, obviously the the glaze of the donut, had some fun with sprinkles here and there, and then and the cool ice cream. It was just a fun take on an ice cream sandwich that uh, kind of was everybody's guilty pleasure.
0: Well, I think, again, you've created another startling book, <laughs> one that everybody's going to have a good time with. Um, so, uh, again, listeners, it's Matt Moore. And uh, you've heard him here before on, on the menu radio. And I'm sure you'll hear him again. But the current book is Serial Griller, Grill Master Secrets for Flame-Cooked Perfection. And it really is. Matt, i enjoyed it. Here
1: you go. There's one, one, one more piece of advice. I think it's probably the best piece of advice in the book. It says, stop poking and prodding.
0: Oh,
4: yeah, yeah, yeah. You're big on that, yeah.
1: Because cause, cause it'll be done when it's done, right?
4: <laughs> it'll be what it'll be, right?
1: <laughs> well, it'll be done when it's done. <laughs> hey, guys, it's <laughs> always a <laughs> pleasure, and uh,
4: let's, let's not let it go so long next time. But thank you for your support, and um, thank you to all the listeners. Hope everybody's staying safe and uh, staying home and cooking out.
0: Okay. Good idea, Matt. Thank you so much.
4: Bye-bye. Thank you. Have a nice day. Bye-bye. You too, bye.
2: Podcasting services for On the Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station,
4: www.aspstation.net.
2: Well, one of the good things about doing the On the
0: Menu Radio podcast is that we get to uh, meet new people, uh, talk to uh, old friends, learn something all the time, and you will too. Listening to this next mm-hmm. interview with mm-hmm. Anne this, and Dee Simone.
1: this one's a real. Uh, pay attention because there's there's stuff going
0: on in here uh, we never knew about. We it. never knew that there is a big thing, a so, real thing. So here's the story.
1: Here's the story Adler about agri Hood. agri Hood. Good, the recording has started and we're talking. Yeah,
0: and we're we're talking to Anna DeSimone um, about uh, her book, which is Welcome to the Agra Hood. And if that's a a new term for you, um, it's subtitled Housing, Shopping, and Gardening for a Farm to Table Lifestyle. Uh, Welcome, Anna. And uh, I, I picked up this book and I looked at it and I had a similar reaction strangely enough, totally different perspective to when I first picked up um the the Making the Cities, Jane Jacobs book. Hmm. I mean the whole concept is remaking how how we live and build our social network, right?
2: Well yes. But well first of all, thank you for inviting me. Uh, this is this is my first audio interview since the book was released. But because of, you know, because of printing issues, it's being advertised as print won't be available until July. But I have about 200 copies in my house. So if if anyone wants a copy of the print book, um, you know, just they can go on my website and get it. And of course Mm -hmm. it's available in Kindle. But I'll have to give you a little bit of background. People, Yeah, in, I need the background
0: because yeah. it came out of the blue to me. And, and I, I, I really and yeah. I was dying to, to get to it because it's so appropriate. I mean, you wrote this a while yeah. ago probably.
2: No, no, so I just wrote in the past six months. But oh, what, okay. What, last year I wrote, um, I published my book on housing finance called Housing Finance 2020, which I did in English and Spanish. And while I was writing that book, I covered a couple of chapters covered rural housing and of course i'm an avid gardener myself and rural housing is you know very meaningful to me and i'm a big fan of what the united states has done the housing agencies has done in rural communities and as i was doing my research i discovered what the usda was doing in the area of helping farmers and so I was beginning to research more about buying local food and helping farmers.
4: And then Correct,
2: that right. kind of grew into agrihoods. And I named the book El- Welcome to the Agrihood" because I thought it was a little bit of a take on welcome to the neighborhood. Yes. And so,
1: now it's, a, it's a new word, Anna. Yes, I've, never, never, yes. I've never heard of this word before. You, yes, you it gave... was coined
2: about 10 years ago. Well, actually, oh, was, maybe okay. 20 years ago by one of the nation's first uh, agrihood developers out in California. But there are about 100 agrihoods in the country. And it's um, probably going to be another 40 or 50 uh that will be announced over the next several years. But you know, basically what they are in a nutshell is a master planned community. And instead of having a golf course or a country club as its centerpiece Yeah I like that a, a lot when you farm. wrote that. <laughs> yeah, it has a working farm. And if you if you saw one of the I described one of the agrihoods that I spoke with uh in Ohio where they call their neighborhood a community of free range chickens and free range kids. <laughs> and so the thing that I love about the agrihood, of course, interviewing all of these people and talking to them and hearing about their enthusiasm for, you know, organic farming, sustainable agriculture and, you know, supporting what people are really looking for today and that is locally sourced food. And I think people want to know the history behind their They want to know the history and the story behind their food. Um, people are looking for traceability from seed to packaging. And so my book is divided in two. It's, well, actually three. It's about living in a neighborhood where the farm is right there. You can walk to the farm. But when I started the book, I thought, well, not everyone can live in an agri I mean, people have families, they have work, they can't just up and move. And they're not in every state in the country. They're only in about two-thirds of the, of the states in America. And so I decided to put in a national directory. So I actually filtered down all of the farms in America that have They have sustainable agriculture practices, they're organic farms, and they sell a wide range of fruits and vegetables, and and they very often sell, you know, grass-fed meat and poultry from, you know, their friends who are also farmers and artisans in the area. And so, and I explain what a Community supported agriculture program, and you know what kind of contract would you sign? Yeah, what are the on, terms?
1: On a, on a, explain, yeah. explain, the dif- explain the difference, between an an, well, an agrihood and a CSA.
2: Well, an agrihood is a place where you live. You buy a home and you live there, and you you might have walking trails. You'll be surrounded by natural preserves. There's there's a clubhouse with pools. Usually, there might be there might be horseback riding, uh, kids' activities, dog parks, uh, bike trails. You know, boating, fishing. You know, agrihoods are, are usually master planned communities, and therefore they're they're built with many amenities. Specific, okay. typically walking get, trails, and, and then the farm to... is usually professionally managed. Yeah, how do they get? yeah, created? that was I mean,
1: something does, that struck me that does, that, does somebody have an idea and and they and they sponsor it or is it a real estate type development?
2: Well it uh, a it's developed nature? by a, yeah a builder a builder will buy the land okay and right. a lot of neighborhoods were built on heritage farmland and the farmer, let's say a farmer in Pennsylvania has a hundred acre farm right and he's finding yeah you know, it it's not easy to you know make a profit on a farm, and you know maybe there's fewer people that'll help help them and You know he wants to take you know the get some money back for his land well instead of selling the hundred acres to a housing developer who will put up two hundred homes and take away the pastoral farmland which has history to it. What an agrihood developer does is say, look, we will acquire the 200 acres, but we're going to put two-thirds of that historic land into a trust, and we're only going to build houses on a third. So they might build 30 homes or 50 homes on 30 acres. So there are agrihoods where people have four or five acres of land, but for the most part, Your playground is the conservation land or heritage farmland that was acquired by the developer. Now, I can tell you when a developer is negotiating with a town or county and they're meeting, you know, with the public and saying, well, we're coming into town to build a new community, the town is much more receptive when you're going to have environmental protections. You are keeping the native habitat. You're not taking down any trees. You're reducing the carbon footprint for people because of sustainable agricultural practices. Uh, watershed and, you know, what is happening to groundwater runoff. I mean, it takes several years for any housing developer to sit with the planning commission of any jurisdiction and say, well, this is what we're going to do. And a lot of the, the setbacks in housing construction have to do with environmental issues and watershed issues. But with an agri when you're taking land and putting it into a trust for conservation – um, and people can enjoy the pastoral views, they're enjoying the views of valleys, canyons, or they can go fishing in natural ponds or creeks. This is all very good. And so agri are appealing to people that want to connect with nature.
4: Now, so there, you also, you know, there's two things going
2: on. There's connecting on the, with the farm and then there's connecting with nature because there are miles and miles of horseback riding trails or parks, pocket parks, that that are built into the master plan community.
1: Now, where, where, do, yeah. where do you find a, a core of the, of the agrihood is the fact that there's a professional farmer who's actually using the land that's in the trust, Right.
2: Yes. Yeah. Well, the professional farmer, and I would say about maybe you know, off the top of my head, there might be twenty or thirty agri-hoods in America where the the team that's running the pro farm the farm was the original farm family.
1: Got it. Okay. Okay. I but, was wondering about uh, that.
2: But more than that, you'll also see many agri-hoods do not. They repurposed the original barns and silos and outbuildings that were used. They like to preserve the history.
0: Yeah, you and say so, you can, they pop up all over. The, oh, the, can, it's something to look at when you're walking around your community. Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah, it's beautiful. I mean, you know, people, people used to pay f- more to have a view of a golf course. Now in an agri people pay more money to have a view of horses grazing in the farm. But I will tell you, despite the the American farmhouse, you know, architecture and that pastoral um, beautiful views, I will tell you this. The homes that are being built in Agri today are the most sustainably built state of the art homes. Yeah, you said that, yeah. Yeah, because they've been built over in the past ten years.
0: Yeah.
2: Geothermal, solar power um, there's a lot of agrihoods that are offering net zero capability, which means no fossil fuels, and there are a lot of there are a lot of luxury agrihoods. And so, when we think about living on the farm or near the farm, we're, we're kind of thinking a little bit rustic, but that's not that's those are available, you know, depending on the area and the price range, but. There are some absolutely beautiful, huge homes, gorgeous homes around the country that that have, um, where people can just walk to a 30 acre organic farm that is growing heirloom vegetables. It's a very, it's a very healthy lifestyle. Perfect. Oh, yeah, like. Now, <laughs> yeah.
1: the thing that puzzles me is. How how did you manage to do all? The, how did you manage to get all this information? I mean, it's this is a magnum opus.
2: <laughs> you know what's I mean, funny because the book doesn't seem to, to be that big compared to my no, other books. No, it's book. not, it, but but a lot of information in it. Well, yeah. Well, it's funny because I've known my for the past forty years. I have been writing for the housing finance industry. And so it came as a little bit of a surprise to people. Well, you know, how did you go from housing finance to this? Well, the truth is I owned a consulting company and we audited, you know, banks and mortgage lenders around the country were our clients. And that w- and I had a lot of lawyers on staff and we worked in a lot of legal cases. And I have a very strong uh, mission and that is I, when I sold my company and went into semi-retirement. I feel that people need to get the most out of their home. Housing today costs almost 10 times more than it did 15 years ago. And so uh, I I am writing, all of my books are written for people to afford homes that they can get the most out of. As a matter of fact, my next book is called Live in a Home That Pays You Back, and that wow. is that. Yeah, that's all about energy efficiency. I'm even including tiny homes and houseboats. I mean, it's really about living where your heart is. I, I think that the I think that people can't afford to buy a McMansion today and and live in you know what I call a fancy community if it's going to stretch them financially. And no, so,
0: no. I mean, we we have a, a you know five thousand square foot house. And, um, you know, it's too much house for us. Yeah, I know.
2: I have my house. I'm in the same boat.
0: And and the the problem is if we sell it and we want to stay in the same general neighborhood, we can't afford to live here. I know. know? So where would we live, you know?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, my grandchildren are living in Canada. And Uh so they're in their 20s and... Fortunately they're happy being behind computers all day because you know they're temporarily out of work. And mm-hmm. I feel like um you know I'm I'm in that same empty nester, you know, baby boomer age bracket where you want to have your garden because I love my garden and right. you want you want to live in a certain area and you want I ride I'm a bike rider. And so all of these things inspire me you know, to write, and I have a big office in my house, as I'm sure you do. Yeah, and a studio. Yeah, yeah. We have have two big
1: offices.
2: (laughs) But, yeah, after after being in the business world and writing about housing, you know, because I've got like 40 books out, but they were all in the hands of bankers. Now Mm -hmm. I'm writing for, um, you know, the public. To get, to inspire people on in how to get the most out of their home and, and AgriHoods is, it, is just, you know, one of the books that I'm writing in the series, uh, you know, live, to have, to get more out of your life. Um,
0: I just wonder how you, where do you start? <laughs> where do you start?
2: The now where where
0: does one start? Who wants to to uh, settle in or or build? I guess we have choice, oh. maybe.
2: Well, if you look at if you look in my directory, if you're thinking of being in a farm-centric community, yeah, you know, I, did, I looked um, at the directory. There's like four or five options in yeah. Pennsylvania, and but some of them are under development. Are they're in the proposal mm-hmm. stage? But agrihoods are increasingly becoming popular by builders.
0: Yeah, it's the next step. past. I mean, we went through the walkable community. Yes. And, and, yeah. and this is comes. We've been through planned communities before too, but not with the central garden. I mean, the farm. Right.
2: Uh, they...
0: And this comes next then.
2: Well, it's not just about the farm. I, almost every i mean there's eighty nine agrihoods that I describe in my book and I'm writing a lot of magazine articles right now and so in writing an article I'm doing even more research mm-hmm. and what what is amazing about agrihoods is the farm is just a part it's the heart of the community but the amenities i are incredible there are there are agrihoods that have um hundreds and hundreds of clubs there are agrihoods that have schools as a matter of fact there's an agrihood in illinois that charter school has won the best school in the nation Yeah, you said that they yeah. have
0: the school oh, systems I'm, in these are good too I'm, so,
2: yeah, I mean, these kids are riding like, let say, the free-range kids. These, it's almost like living, you can live in a gated community and feel safe, but your children, you know, children don't always want to be driven miles away for a play date. It's nice when oh, when so we were time all time growing up. up, we just went outside and played. Exactly. <laughs> and the, the feeling that I get in an neighborhood and talking to all of these people and and doing my research was, these are safe, healthy, vibrant communities for families to thrive. And f- from what I've learned, even though many of the homes, you know, there, you could there are a lot of states where there are homes for like three or four hundred thousand, but. You know, some of the nicer uh, homes, larger homes might be, you know, in the million-dollar price range, just mm-hmm. like, but they're not going to be any more expensive than a typical new home with the same square footage, same yard size, and the same features in the community. There's, There are several agri in Florida, and I think they're great for the over-55 set because... There's cooking classes, there's, there's agricultural, culinary classes, there are fitness centers, spas. You know, there's a lot of things for people to do. And as people age and they retire, you know, they think, well, what am I going to do today? So being having the access to the farm food is wonderful for for, your, for their health and also hobbies because many Agrihoods have um community gardens for people to do their own gardening. Yes. Uh, but it's really the master plan community concept and the amenities that is to me the most exciting thing about the agrihoods.
1: Well, if this sounds like a lifestyle you're interested in, listeners, the first thing first mm-hmm. thing to do is to is to get on Anna's website and buy a copy of well, the book. So, well, yeah, so you understand, oh, so you understand you. Well, a, little, a little more about it. Uh, but I know. For, 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 for Pittsburghers, it's very interesting to see a picture of what? Mr. Rogers, and it's a beautiful <laughs> day in the neighborhood. And you can, ima- can imagine—certainly, you can imagine him living in an neighborhood. Although he actually it didn't. didn't. <laughs>
2: You really read my book. I think that's great. I'm 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 so happy. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> like, how many people tell us that
0: when we interview them. In. I'm assuming <laughs> most of the people who do interviews don't read it.
2: <laughs> you really read my book. Uh, well, yeah. What, well, well you, what, I have to tell what, you though, you are sitting, you are living in the area where near Hilltop Farm, yes. which is teaching agriculture, and it's it it has a plan to be the largest. Urban farm in America, and they're doing farmer education for kids. You know, camps, workshops. And it's not an agrihood, but it's a farm. It's an agricultural learning center. Right, right. And right, right it's it. it's a farm. It's an urban farm. And urban farms are also cropping up all over.
0: We have them. I mean, we, yeah, we're very close to a number of urban farms. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they've knocked down um, uh, inhabitable buildings and and built farms in the middle of that, that densely populated neighborhood. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, to see what yeah. they're doing. Yeah. yeah.
2: Well, you know, I've been talking about people buying homes in hoods but one of the things that I did cover in my book, although there are not that many available yet, they are growing, is. You don't have to own a home to have a, to, to be able to grow your own organic vegetables, and so there are apartment buildings now that have organic farms on the rooftop
0: on the road, of the, the building.
2: Rooftop. Yeah. yeah, and then there are apartment buildings around the country where the uh, landlords are providing private gardening spaces, like little raised bed gardens, for people to do their own gardening, but. The the one and I didn't list them all because well for first of all it was just a lot more work to just try to find all of these buildings. But what I did list were the most amazing apartment complexes. It's it's an idea that came from from the Netherlands actually, and what it is 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 the newest thing in apartment buildings is not only do you have the organic farm, you have several restaurants within the complex because people are working from home and they and the designers of this wanted to have people have more of a lifestyle you know something to do after five o'clock when your work day ends and they completely redesigned redesign the stairway so instead of taking an elevator or taking the stairway up and down the apartment building floors. It's all open. It's almost like an office building. And then they have cafes, you know, for having coffee. And then they have, you know, more formal dining areas. But what they do is they have the organic farm provide the food for all of the restaurants in the building. And then the chef has his own special, you know, heirloom vegetable gardens. But they do a lot of interactive things. They're connecting with their tenants you know they'll have like a yoga instructor come and give a speech they'll have a wine sommelier come and, and, and give a demonstration and they will have cooking classes culinary exercises and so all of the people that are living there they they're doing a lot of gathering space meetings in these general areas there's a lot of common space indoors but it's surrounded by floor-to-ceiling glass, so you always have that feeling of indoor-outdoor. Nice. And the the landscapes now are very different. They they include dog parks, walking trails, pocket parks. And they have, they built, there's four of them in the New York City area. And I I covered them in my book because I know that there are people that want to do their own gardening. Indoor, outdoor microgreens, or grow organic food. And I thought, not everyone can buy a house. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and there are people that need to work in the city. That's where their livelihood yeah, is.
0: Yeah. And
2: so I covered that because. You know, if you're looking to move and you are renting an apartment, why not look for one where you can have your own, do your own gardening, or have, or have that kind of um, a lifestyle provided courtesy of your management company.
0: Well, Anna, you've given us so many ideas on <laughs> what to do next to, to put something, a plan <laughs> I, in action here.
2: We should, move yeah, we should talk okay. again because I'm always looking for ideas on what to do next because I'm, you know, I'm managing two homes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. Well, oh, I, I've, I've enjoyed this conversation, oh, enjoyed your too. book, and um, uh, I'm sure that you have more books Coming out, that will probably be in touch and talking again.
2: Yeah. Yes. Yes. I'm sure great. you'll you'll hear about. So once we're connected,
0: time. we'll continue maintaining uh, the connection. That's great. I would
2: love that. Thank you, you Anna. You're <laughs> Bye bye. Bye.
1: Okay. That's it. Huh? Uh, uh, I sh- I sure hope you're all a lot smarter. We certainly feel well, like yeah, feel we're smarter. We're all <laughs> lot smarter. Thanks to these wonderful guests in today's program and we'll have some more wonderful guests for you same time, same place next week. So don't be shy. Join us again. And until then, bye-bye.